There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, Yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well... Is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. 
He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job. Uh, anybody here have their favorite book is the book of Job? Cool. Okay, some kindred spirits. Uh, that is, by the way, it's a great introduction. And Larry mentioned this last week, and let me again today. This uh, website address, the URL is on your study sheet, uh, the Bible Project. They just... They do a great job. They've actually got another longer one on the book of Job. This was done as part of the trio of just talking about the li wisdom literature, but there's another one that is 11 or 12 minutes long that does the book of Job that's worth your time as well. So that's a great uh, short introduction to this book. This is the book, uh, obviously, I'm going to be teaching through, and, and I'll be teaching through this uh, through this semester. So if you don't love Job, now, if it's not one of your favorite books right now, I hope it will be by the end of May. I've told several of you knew that I was going to be teaching through this book, and the response, responses in both directions were somewhat interesting. There's been some incredulity by some. It's a long book, right? And so how are you going to teach through that? It's a confusing book, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how we'll get through it in a minute. But I think most people avoid the book uh, for one of a couple of reasons, and one is this. It's, it's kind of depressing, or it can come across as pretty depressing, because you spend a lot of chapters just reading about someone's sorrow and loss and pain and sort of their confusion in that. And so you're sort of just wallowing in someone's suffering. And so some of us read it and say, it's kind of depressing, I'm not really interested in that. Uh, for others of us, it's confusing. 
Uh, they, we're, we're actually going to get to a little bit of the why questions that I think the book does tell us why some things were going on for Job. But it's confusing because you can read through the book of Job. One, you can just get lost. You can get lost in the discussions. But also you can read through them all and come to the end of the book and still wonder, what am I supposed to have got out of that? What was the message? Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit too. I'm sympathetic to the folks who don't read Job for him. It's not a favorite book, but I confess it remains one of my favorites. Let me read to you uh, comments, a couple comments, brief comments, from two commentators who've spent a lot of time soaking in this book. One is Christopher Ashe. This is a recent commentary. And by the way, also interesting, uh, this guy who did this commentary um, personally went through a mental breakdown that lasted two or three years. He's a pastor, he's an author, he's an academic. And he's got a book on that as well, which I had actually read before. I knew he did a commentary on Job. So he's a guy who has gone through some personal, deep, prolonged suffering as well. He says this, Job is a fireball book. It's a staggeringly honest book. It's a book that knows what people actually say and think not just what they say publicly in church. There's no put-on in this book. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whisper, and it knows what we say in our tears. It is not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, it will trouble us, and it will unsettle us at a deep level. He brings up a little bit later, he's trying to answer the question, why do we need 42 chapters? That's the length of the book of Job. 42 chapters for this theme. And Ash says, maybe it's because when the suffering question, why is there suffering or why am I suffering? And the where is God question and the what kind of God question are raised from the wheelchair. And this he means not when we're reading Job and life is good, when we're particularly ourselves in a place of suffering, and we're wondering why is this going on. He says those why questions in that setting cannot be answered on a postcard. If we ask what kind of God allows this kind of world, God gives us a 42-chapter book. Far from saying the message of Job can be summarized on a postcard or in a tweet, he says, come with me on a journey, a journey that will take time. There is no instant answer. Why? Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a 42-chapter journey with no satisfactory bypass. There's no quick way through this. There's no microversion. David McKenna is another uh, author of a commentary on Job. He subtitles Job, seeing through suffering or perceiving life through suffering. He says this, if once we see through to God as Job does, our fears give way to trust and whatever righteousness we claim gives way to grace. And and if you've read Job, you know where Job ends at the end of the day. He sees himself in ways he hadn't before. He sees God in ways he hadn't before. He understands his own sin and God's grace in a much fuller way. My hope as we go through this book is to look at not only a number of issues, but if not to solve, to sort of work through a process on a number of key issues in life. I want to say on the front end, though, sometimes people go to Job 
for a place to ask the question, the ultimate question about why is there sin and suffering at all? Sort of the existential question. Why would God ever, a good God, why would He ever create a world in which sin and suffering exist? And Job really doesn't go to that question. It's not a place to go for that question. The story of Job assumes sin and suffering and pain and righteousness and unrighteousness. So he's not trying to answer that bigger question. What he's really interacting with is, is why suffering affects us in our times and places of life in which we think we're okay with God and then the bottom seems to fall out. You know, on one hand, Christians are warned in the New Testament, if you live a godly life, you'll suffer persecution. But that's not really what Job's talking about. It's I'm doing the right thing. I'm not suffering because I'm following Jesus. I'm just going along in life and the bottom falls out and I don't know why and I don't know what to think about it. I don't know what to do about it. That's more of where Job's coming from. The big thing that we're going to find out a little bit to the why question is that in the book of Job, you'll see that the process of loss and pain and suffering ends up having the effect of refining Job in ways he didn't know he needed and probably wouldn't have asked for either. So part of the why question, the answer, or part of the answer to part of the why question, at least on Job and his suffering, is that um, God is after something more than your comfort and mine. And this is a challenge for us at any time in life. Um, we are by nature pain avoiders. Uh, people say, some, someone says, I pay for patience. Or other people say they pay for Christ, uh, pray for Christians to have persecution because of the refining element. And I'm like, I never pray for those things, ever. I know I'm going to have trouble. I know life's going to come along and I'm going to get hit upside. I know God's going to lead me in the process of sanctification. I don't ask for those things. I have trouble enough as it is. You know, negotiate. Okay, Lord, okay, I'm okay with this. You know, I don't ask for those things. But part of the process, part of the answer to Job's why question is because God's refining Job in ways he didn't know he needed. Um, <laughs> have you guys ever had those things in life, a situation, a difficult situation, and you, and you just say, um, uh, God, I'll change what I'm doing. I change my ways. I'll make a decision and life will be good and I'll be different and life will go on and you'll get what you want and I'll get what I want. And Job sort of says there are elements in your life and mine of God's holy work of making us more fully into His image, sort of stripping away the old sinful, selfish life and sort of fertilizing that new Christ life in us. He says part of that has nothing to do, or very little to do at least, with decisions you make in a moment or a day. And instead, they become the fruit of a process. And more often than not, what you'll find is it's the process of suffering and pain and loss that is what God uses to refine you more fully into the image of His Son. So, a lot of what God wants to do in your life, it will not happen in the happy high times of life. It'll happen in the painful suffering times of life. And frankly, that's the only way it can. Pain, suffering, the fires of affliction, anything along that line. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but it doesn't get wasted. Those things don't get wasted in your life and mine. God uses them. He uses them very intentionally. And one of the things when, when you and I find ourselves in confusing situations, we need to remind ourselves that our Father is absolutely sovereign. 
And there's nothing you or I experience or can experience that He hasn't directly caused or allowed in His sovereign, benevolent, loving purpose and plan. That's another thing we need to take from Job's book and his suffering. Anything that's coming our way, God has caused it or allowed it. It can't be otherwise. And He's promised to use anything for our good. I've shared these examples a couple times before, so if you've heard them, just bear with me. You know, if you were a grape living on the sunny hillside of California, and you're in a cluster of grapes, and California's a lovely place to be, by the way, wine country in California is one of my favorite places. So you're a grape in a cluster of grapes on the vine, and your aspiration is to grow up, and it's to be a part of a very fine wine, a vintage, not the 5 or $10 bottle of wine, but a really expensive one, the kind you'd age. And so you say, when I grow up, that's what I want to be. And so you grow, and you grow with your brothers and sisters around you. You're all closely huddled together. And one day, somebody comes along and picks you and drops you into a little cluster of other clusters. And you feel yourself riding along, you know, and you end up in this big vat. And and you feel the weight of other of your great friends. They're on top of you, and the the pressure increases. It increases more and more. And you know what starts happening? The pressure gets so big that your skin ruptures. And the juices that are your life, they pour out of you. And you're like, this is not what I signed up for. And your juice mingles with the other juice. And right, you got to go, that grape's got to go through all that crushing process in which it loses its life to become part of that fine wine. It will not happen otherwise. It cannot happen otherwise. What the grape wants will only come about through a process in which it would not choose. You know, a biblical example of the same thing is the thought of gold in the ground. So if you and I, we aspire to be gold, but we're rough, right? You're rough and I'm rough. And that's like impurities in our lives. And so there's gold there, but it's not pure. And so what do you take that ore with all the impurities? You take it and you put it in a a crucible. And that's an interesting word. Uh, a crucible, if you just look up the definition, it, it just says a ceramic or a something made of something else. It's a pot. What is it? Graphite. And you know about that, don't you then? Yeah, in which you heat something up and it melts. But you know what the root of crucible is? It's, it's crux. It's cross. A crucible is the place where you lose your life. And so you take that ore, you heat it up. You know, if I'm ore and I have gold and I'm ore, do I want somebody to put a torch to me and melt me down? That sounds painful. And I think it would be painful if ore had feelings and nerves. But if you don't go through the fire, you don't get pure gold. You know, in fact, it's Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. When you and I go through pain and suffering, what comes to the surface? What is revealed in your life and mind when we go through the process of pain and suffering? The introduction did a great job. One of the points they made was they said, you know, Job goes through, he goes up and down, just like you and I do in emotionally troubling times, right? We're all over the place. In one of his clearer moments, Job says this, He, God, knows the way that I take. When He has tried me, I shall come out as gold. At one clear moment in his pain and suffering, he says, I get it, God's with me. And when this suffering is over, I'll be something I wasn't before. There will be a purity in my life that didn't exist before. Last example. So, 
I have four daughters. My wife delivered four daughters by C-section. Now, do you know what some of her friends told her? They said, Kathy, you cheated. What do you mean? Well, you didn't go through the pain of childbirth. And Kathy's like, well, you know how this works, right? So if you have a normal delivery, when's the pain? Before the baby comes out, right? Maybe after. But if you have a C-section, when's the pain? It's after. Can you escape the pain of childbirth and get a baby? Can't do it. And that's the same thought here. You and I cannot become the people in Christ God means us to be without some forms of suffering, of pain, of fire, of disappointment, of confusion. It's in those times that God is actually refining us. Those are not times in which God loves us less. We'll talk about that a little bit later. God is paying attention. God is very intentional. And that's actually a piece of His loving kindness to us in those times. So, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book of Job is the end of Job. And Job is going to say this. If you've read the book, you know where this goes. But at the end of the book, Job says this. He says to God, I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ear. Meaning, Lord, I heard about you. I knew something about you. I, th- I thought I had an image of you that was pretty accurate. I'd heard about you. But then he says, but now my eyes have seen you. Through the pain and the suffering and the loss, he says, now my eyes have seen you. And because of that, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. I've seen myself more fully for what I am. I've seen you more fully for who and what you are. And now I get it, or I get it more fully. You're God, and I'm not. So we see our sins with greater clarity. And we see God in His grace with greater clarity. By the way, how do you like that image? Who wants that as a lifestyle? Did I? Isn't that a great image? By the way, my son-in-law put that thing together for me, so I appreciate Chris. So one of the key questions in this book is, is why. It's the why question. That's Job's asking throughout. Why? What's going on? You know, if you're a chain smoker for 20 or 30 years and the doctor tells you you've got cancer, it's like you say, well, fine. I don't like that, but you say cause and effect. I smoke. I got cancer. I did A. I got B. It makes sense. It's consistent. It's, it's logical. If you say, I use uh, food for comfort, and guess what? I put on 20 pounds, and you say, I can't blame anyone but myself. I overate. You know, I did A. I got B. To those why questions, it seems logical to us. We don't fight those. We don't have a battle with those. I get it. Cause and effect. I did this. I got that. I made this decision. I get this in. But that's not where Job's at. And that's usually not the the why questions that you and I struggle with. So the why questions we struggle with go something like this. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm living life in a way that I think is honorable or appropriate before God and before others. And then the bottom fell out. In, in my mind, as far as I can see, there is no cause and effect. I, I'm doing, A, all the positives. I'm doing all the right things. And the bottom falls out. What in the world is going on? I had a deal with God. I'll keep up my end. God keeps up His end. Everybody's happy. And then something else comes along and it's like, what happened? So, you know, for a lot of us, I'll just give some examples. You'd have your own. A lot of us, um, just talking to someone this weekend, uh, they mentioned a friend whose, whose little child had died. So, so I might say, I'm a parent, and my child dies. And I said to God, what is the deal? 
Why? My child died or my spouse died. You know, some of us today would say, Lord, I've done all the right things. I'm the right kind of person. Why am I not married? That's a huge... You know, the average age of marriage, 29 for guys, 28 for gals. Uh, When Kathy and I got married, it was 23 and 22. There's all kinds of people that want to be married today, and they aren't. And they're like, Lord, what's the deal? I'm ready. I've been ready. Um, Some couples will say this, Lord, uh, we love you. We want to have a family. Why can't we have children? So you can multiply this, right? Lord, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm, I'm honoring you. But i got this area in my life in which the bottom's fallen out and I don't know what to do. Lord, why me? Why now? Why this? Why that? For, for all of us, it'll be different things, right? And it'll be different things at different times of life. That's the why question Job struggles with. God, why am I suffering? I can see no cause and effect. And this is the thing in our mind. We, we, ha- we tend to have a very simplistic thought process on this. We tend to think, if I do the right thing, I will get what I want. It's cause and effect. And one, you live in a world of sin and death. You know what? That logic just doesn't apply here. In a world of sin and death, I'm just going it's, to, it's, everything's good because I do all the right things. One, I'm not right. I sin all the time. And sin always brings sin and, uh, more death, right? But the world is ruled by sin and death. And so the logic that says I can manage life to avoid suffering and pain and loss that's a fool's thought. It doesn't exist on the planet. It existed briefly, but it hasn't existed since Eden. So we want to get rid of that. But for us, I think the key thing on the, on the why question, it, it does go to cause and effect. So, the bottom of my life falls out. God, if you'll tell me why, I'll fix it. So you tell me what to do, Lord. What's the cause and effect? So you tell me what, I'll change my life, and I'll get what I want. So tell me what what I did wrong. I'll fix it and life will go on. Show me cause and effect here. And you can't get there with Job. Not not in the the ultimate sense. Cause and effect doesn't exist in that sense. They mention this in the introduction too, by the way. Job wanted God to answer the why question. And as they mentioned, God never does. Why, why, why? And God never says why. And you know, if you read that, and we'll talk about the layout of the book here in a minute, but when you read that, at, you get to the end, you finally realize he never answered the question. He didn't even come close to answering the question. He didn't even start to answer the question that Job had. Make my world right. Tell me why this is going on. It never happens. This is what God did. God showed, showed Job more of himself And by that I mean Job saw himself in ways he'd never seen himself before. And God showed Job more of himself, God himself, and that's why Job repents at the end of the book. God did not give Job what he wanted. He never got it, but he did give him what he needed. And what Job needed and what you and I need in those same times are more of God himself. If you've got a Bible, we're going to just broach the book This morning, we're going to read the first five verses from chapter 1 in the Pew Bible. This is page 417. And this just sets up the book. This is just putting our toe in the water. Just sets up the book. Doesn't even really get to the conflict. Job 1, 1 through 5 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Job means, where is my father? His name does. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. 
There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So that's, that's our introduction to Job, to the person of Job. And I just want to run through this enough so that we get a sense of what God wants us to know about Job. So those terms, blameless and upright, we'll look at that specifically in another in a future week. But when Job looks, or when God looks at Job, he says, this is my kind of guy. He's blameless and he's upright. He says, Job has seven sons and three daughters. Now, <clears throat> I think that means Job had seven sons and three daughters, literally. But I think it also means this. Seven and three are numbers of completion or perfection. So God has blessed Job in his children perfectly, fully just the way anyone could want. His quiver is full of children, just the way he wanted. Seven sons and three daughters. And you see the same thing in the number of livestock. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, servants and wealth. Job is as fully and completely and perfectly blessed in life on the earth as a person can be. That's what we're meant to see and understand. Job is it. He's got the golden life. God has blessed him. In fact, so fully, it says... He's uh, the greatest of all the people of the East. Job is not a Jew, by the way. And the East is east of the land of promise. Of all those people, Job is the greatest. God has blessed him fully more than anyone else around. But also, Job had things that you couldn't buy with wealth, with money. And that has to do with his family. There was harmony and there were, there were relationships that were blessed and ongoing among his children. Uh, I don't know what this was like in your family, either as a kid growing up in your parents or, or uh, your own kids if you're a parent. You know, we told our girls when they were little, your sisters are your best friends, period. If your sisters are not your best friends, you will have no other friends. It's a non-negotiable. Job had that. His, friend, his kids, they're grown, and guess what they're doing? They're hanging out with each other. When the sons have these feasts, the, the sisters are coming. They're hanging out with, they love it. They love hanging out with each other. You can't get that with wealth. Job's family was blessed. You also see this. Job had not only been a good father, a good parent, but he didn't quit being a father, a caring, loving father to his grown children. And I confess for me, this is a challenge for me. To be a loving father to my grown children It requires work and effort in a way I was absolutely naive to. You know, most of our girls don't live here. I got to make phone calls. I got to make sure I keep in contact with. Them. I I realize they like when I do that, but for me to do that, it's work for me. I've I've got to think about it. Job was thinking about being a father and a parent after his kids are grown, because he's still the family priest. He's not sure what's going on when they're away from him, but he knows sin is a possibility. And he says, after those feasts, guys, come on, come home, come together, and we're going to offer those offerings because we want to make sure. I want to make sure as your dad, that if there's something that's come between God and you, that sin is covered by the sacrifice. He was a great dad, a great father. 
Later, in chapter 29, it's sort of in the midst of a lament after Job loses everything, he's, he's characterizing what his life had been before when it was blessed. And he says, among other things, this. You know, the city gate was the place where all the, the important people met. It's where the business of anyone was done. So Job said, it used to be, when I was in my prime, I would go into the city gate. When I arrived, the young men would get up from their seats and the princes of the land who were talking, they would quit talking when I showed up. And then when I spoke on the matter, I was the final word. That was it. He says not only that, he says, I lived like a king. And that goes to the wealth. I had the wealth of a king. I lived like a king. And with the wealth God gave me, I took care. I comforted the needs of everyone around me that I was aware of. I was a benevolent king. That's what my life was like. So guys, when we're seeing Job, we're seeing the best of the best. So what you see is on one hand, Job is the godliest guy on the face of the earth. Job is the most blessed guy on the face of the earth. So guess what? So if God tests Job, he's testing the best version of humanity possible, right? He's the godliest guy on the earth. He's the most blessed guy on the earth. If God tests Job, what he finds in Job will be to some degree true of lesser mortals like you and me, right? Job's going to prove the point. And what do you find, although God starts the book, he says he's blameless and upright, what does Job end up doing? If you've read the book, you know. He ends up justifying himself at God's expense. In other words, he says, God, I am more righteous than you are. You haven't done right by me. So God's holy and perfect. He can't sin, but that's what Job accuses him of. So what we realize is that when God tests a blameless and upright man on the earth, the best there ever was, what does he find? He finds sin. Job proves the point that there's none righteous, no not one. He's the epitome of godliness. He's the epitome of blessing. And yet, when God pulls the bottom out and puts Job through the, the furnace of affliction and suffering, we find out, guys, guess what? The best among us is sinful. Sift any of us long enough and what you'll find is not glory, it's sin. Harry Ironside wrote a short commentary on this book and he said the theme the key theme of the book of job was the need for repentance in the life of the righteous it goes something like this are there any shrek fans here shrek fans so because if you haven't seen shrek you won't quite get oh maybe you will so in the story of shrek shrek or the donkey i forget but one shrek is an onion boy He's an onion boy. He has layers. And what you'll find is that um, you and I have layers too. And this is Ironside's point from Job. You and I may, let's say on a given day, we confess our sins, known sins to God. And we're good to go and God's good and we're good and life's grand. But then what do you find a week, a month, a year later? What do you find in your life? You'll find new versions of sin, won't you? You know, the older I get, I got saved at 19. I'm 61, whatever that is, 40 and change. You know what? I feel more sinful today than I did then. 
you know I wasn't smart enough to know that I was sinfully deficient on my way to hell. I didn't know. I was oblivious. The older I became, and I got saved, by the way, I wasn't afraid of hell. I wasn't smart enough to be afraid of hell. But I got that my life has this element of death. I get that what I'm experiencing is not good. It's not what I want. I'm lonely. I'm empty. I know that. I'm doing all the things I want. I'm still lonely. I'm still empty. Jesus is the answer. I got that. Jesus saved me. I got that. But guess what I've learned as I get older? The older I get, the more sin I see. And the more sin I see, guys, it's deeper sin and it's wider. And that's what Ironside is talking about. What you and I see, you'll see your sin as a deeper, wider, loathsome thing in your trials and afflictions than you can see in your times of comfort. It's just the way we are. We're, we're just wired this way. And that's why Ironside said one of the key themes of Job is the need for repentance in the life of the righteous. And that's what Job finds. That's part of the, the, uh, the why and the, the answer to his why question. Uh, let me mention too briefly, uh, Job's a real story and a real guy. Uh, we're living in a time in which evangelicals will say parts of the New Testament aren't true historically, parts of the Old Testament aren't true historically. That is sections of Scripture that look like historic narrative. They say, well, no, they're really not. Job's historic narrative, real guy, real story, really happened, one. Uh, Two, Job isn't a Jew. He lives in the land of the East. He's the greatest of the sons of the East. He's not a Jew, but the book appears to be clearly have written by a Jew. Uh, Job is referred to in Ezekiel 14, also in James 5.11. You'll see on your study sheet at least three of the connections between Old Testament, other Old Testament Scripture, Psalms, and Isaiah with passages out of Job. The book uses God's covenant name Yahweh in Job at least a couple of times. Also, read chapter 28 in Job, and you would think you could take that chapter in Job and you could put it right in the book of Proverbs. It looks like it comes right out of that book. It fits right in with the Jewish wisdom literature. And we're guessing, the guess has always been pretty much, that Job is probably around or before the time of Abraham. So he's old. He lives a long time, by the way. Also on the literary layout of the book, and guys, I hope this isn't boring to you. There's a little graph on your study sheet. And for me, this is actually, if you take nothing else away from this this morning, take this away. Because it's so easy to get lost in the book, you've got to have some handholds on this book. And if you break it up the way it was written, you can read it and get less lost or less lost often, or something along that line, okay? So it's mostly poetry, but if you look in the first two chapters, you've got prose, it's the narrative, and it's the story of Job, and it's the conflict. All that's instituted in Job's 1 and 2. So if you're reading through Job, read Job 1 and 2. From 3 through 37, there are three cycles of three. So Job speaks... A comforter speaks. Job speaks. A comforter speaks. Job speaks. A comforter speaks. That happens three times. If you're reading through Job, you get into that section, read one cycle. Now, one cycle, they get shorter as they go on. One cycle could be a couple chapters. One cycle could be ten chapters. But read the cycle because that's, that's argument, point, counterpoint, argument, counterargument. That's what you've got in those cycles. Three through thirty-seven. 
Now they get a little shorter. The comforters' arguments get a little shorter. And then you get this guy, I think it's chapter 32. Elihu comes in, wasn't introduced before. We'll do a chapter on, we'll do a Sunday on him later. But he, he just takes up his place in that point-counterpoint in the third cycle. That's through 37. 38 through 41, that's God. God comes down and speaks. And then chapter 42. So you can dispense with a lot of the confusion, not all of it, but if you'll just read the book the way it's laid out, it'll be clearer. You'll read arguments together that were meant to be read together. So read it the way it was laid out. Oh, I'm, I'm over, guys. Sorry. Let me wind down. you got some other things on there. I do need to close with this. So you know, typically... When I was putting this together, I went through the images I already had, and uh, Christ on the cross uh, I already had, and I, I had to find the image of Job, and then Chris doctored it for me. And it wasn't until I put them together that I realized that it's the same French artist that did both paintings. Bonnat, B-O-N-N-A-T, you can see those online. Um, <clears throat> we tend to feel neglected by God when we're in the times of suffering, right? You pray, you ask God to do something, nothing happens. You feel isolated, you don't feel like someone comes alongside you. You're looking for something and you feel like nothing comes along, right? If you're a parent, you know this. So, I hope, if I say, do you love your, your child or your children? You would say yes, that's the correct answer. If someone asks you if you love your children, you say yes. And then do you say, do you love your children all the time? Yes, I love my children all the time. What does that affection and love look like, though? Uh, blue skies and green lights. Your child's going along swimming and life is grand. Do you love them then? Of course you love them then. But what does that love and affection look like when the bottom falls out of their life, when they're really sick? They're really frustrated. They've really suffered loss. Do you love them then too? And you say, well, yeah, I love them then too. Is my love greater for them then? Maybe I can't say it's greater, but I could say this. It's particular in a way it wasn't before. So we want to dispense with the notion that when I'm suffering, God's further away. He's not further away. If anything, He's closer. His love isn't somehow less. It's not removed. It's more particular. If you have a chance, I'm not even sure if they still print this, but there's a little booklet called Good News for Troubled Christians that's written from the book of Job that talks about the process of suffering and God's participation in our life in those times. It's a great little booklet that, that focuses on this theme. So think about this. If life's unfair, and by the way, sometimes it is. Sometimes, you know, and you say, why in this world do you think life will be fair? I treated so-and-so well, and they rejected me. Is that fair? It's not fair. And who said it would be fair? So we just, we throw that out. Or I'm suffering in ways that God just shouldn't allow me to suffer. And this is the problem when you go accusing God, okay? This is the problem. And this is in the Sunday school uh, answer, by the way. Uh, the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the center of any significant question you and I have. And so this goes something like this. Can you accuse a God who has suffered more intensely than you ever could? Can you accuse a God who took the penalty of your sins on himself can you ever accuse that God of being indifferent to your pain or suffering? No way. Can you ever accuse a God who sent His Son to die for your sins 
of having inadequate love or care for you or for someone you know and love. Can't exist. It's an illogical thought. So let me wind down with a comparison between Jesus and Job, and that's why they're there together. So first, any suffering, any pain, any loss you and I have ever experienced, can ever experience, pales, can't even be compared to the suffering God the Son took on Himself in His incarnation and His death and His cry on the cross, why have you forsaken me, Father? You and I can't get there. We, we don't even know what that looks like, much less what it feels like. Jesus went from the highest estate, deity in heaven, to the lowest place, a criminal on a cross. Job was just a wealthy guy who lost his wealth and his health. God the Son leaves heaven and comes to the earth for you and me. That's a bigger drop than Job had. Jesus was blameless and righteous in all His ways. Absolutely. More than Job. He was the object of Satan's relentless temptations. I think this is brought out in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus suffered temptations like you and I haven't and can't. He suffered temptations and He didn't give in to any of them more than Job. He did right by all those He encountered. Job comforted anyone He could. Jesus healed. He did well. He did right by everyone He could more than Job. He was forsaken by His friends more than Job. He was betrayed by an associate in a way Job wasn't and couldn't have been. He was mocked by His detractors in His moments of greatest grief in ways Job wasn't. Yet He was confident of glory in His resurrection. Job mentions that. Jesus' confidence and surety was greater than Job's. And He interceded for the unrighteous even while He was suffering. By the way, the unrighteous, that's you and that's me. Even while He was suffering for their sins, Job never did that. Listen to this. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, and I love the way he closes, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. That would be you and me, his stupid friends. So, guys, on application, um, I'm only going to mention this. If you've never read Job, or if you have, uh, I'd ask you to read if you can. Get it in in the next two weeks. That's when we'll come up on Job again. Read it and use those handholds the way the book is broken down in its own literature. Read according to the handholds. And if you're part of the worship group, you can come up now. I'm going to close from Psalm 92. It says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That's what we're getting ready to do. It says later at the end of that psalm, The righteous bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They're full of vitality and life. Why? To declare this, that the Lord is upright. You'll find no fault in Him. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in Him. Amen.